0: You can tell a lot about where a speech is heading simply by how it starts. For example, if a speech begins with the words, my fellow Americans, you know that you better perk up your ears and listen up because you might hear something important by the President of the United States. If, on the other hand, you hear the words, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages... You better perk up your eyes, because you're about to be amazed and astounded by amazing feats by circus performers. And if you hear the speech begin with, I want to thank the Academy, (laughs) then you better listen up quick, because the speech is about to get cut off by the orchestra. And if you hear a speech that begins, dearly beloved, we are gathered here together. You can rest assured that that person, is being, that person is a clergy, and you are gathered to celebrate the life of someone you know. Now, in the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, the letters to the church, one of the most common ways to begin an address is to hear the words, to the saints of, and then you name the specific community. Or if the writer is in a particularly intimate mood, you might hear the words, dear brothers and sisters. You hear these salutations over and over again throughout the epistles. But what we have here in the third chapter of John's first epistle to the church that Mike just read moments ago is one of the most rare salutations of them all. Two simple words. That's all it is. In fact, two words that you don't find anywhere else, as far as I can tell, anywhere else in all of the epistles. But it's these two words that John uses to greet the early church that tell you all that you need to know about the tone and the content of what is soon to follow. He says, little children, little children children. Right away you know that what John is about to tell the earliest Christians is something that will bring them back to an earlier age, back to a time when they were more innocent and more youthful, back to a day when their worldview was filled with much more imagination and creativity, back in the day when you and I We're looking ahead to our future and thought we could grow up to do anything we wanted to do and be anything we wanted to be. And one day maybe we could be strong enough, powerful enough to really make a difference in the world. Little children, I've got something to tell you, John says. It's in that context that earlier this week I was thinking a lot about what it was like when I was a little child. Back when I was Little McGray, if you can imagine there was a time when I was (laughs) Little McGray, if you read my midweek message, you know that when I was a little child, I had a deep fascination with superheroes. I loved them, I ate them up, I drank them, I slept superhero, literally, I had Superman underoos when I was a kid. Thanks be to God that there are no longer pictures to prove it, but... I had Superman underoos, and I came home every day to watch Spider-Man on TV, and every Saturday morning I got up extra early with a bowl of cereal in hand to watch the Justice League of America and Super Friends. And I loved to pretend that I was Captain America. I would take the pillows off the couch, and I would use it as my shield to defend against the forces of evil, which were often embodied by my two younger brothers. Never missed a superhero movie. Seen all of the Batman movies. And I will have to even sheepishly admit to you today that there is even still a little bit of little McGray inside big McGray. It's what brought me to a fascination with a man named Daniel Fingeroff. He wrote this book called Superman on the Couch. The subtitle is, What Superheroes Really Tell Us About Ourselves and About Our Society. Daniel Fingeroth knows a thing or two about superheroes. For over 20 years, he was the editor at Marvel Comics. He supervised the entire storyline involving Spider-Man. I think he knows a thing or two about heroes. I heard an interview on NPR with Mr. Fingeroth and I was intrigued by what he said. He said, a good superhero is someone who is an idealized version of the reader, something they can aspire to, something they can imagine being. Superheroes, he said, embody a lot of our hopes and our fears and our best version of ourselves. The idea that you can fail again and again and succeed. That evil is conquerable. Or the idea that even though we are flawed, we can still do well. He said there is something about these characters that reaches out and hits people where they live. I think Mr. Fingeroth is absolutely right about why people love superheroes. Superheroes. But he goes one step further in his book. He says that superheroes not only tell us something about ourselves individually, but they speak to us about who we are culturally. That there's something about superheroes that taps into a culture or a society's deepest values. I think he's right. Everything that he used to describe a superhero for us individually can be applied to the way we see the world as a culture and the way we see individual people. Think about the way we praise people today who are able to raise themselves up by their bootstraps and able to overcome all of the odds and conquer all of their limitations and their weaknesses. Think about, think about the way that's manifested in pop cultural icons. Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Rudy or Luke Skywalker, or Rocky Balboa, or a cowboy, or an astronaut, or a home run hitter, or simply a hometown kid made good. We love to praise these individual achievements by people who overcome great odds, who shed all of their limitations, who even escape what it means to be human in some cases, to find a power deep down inside them that they didn't even know they had. It's one of our favorite overarching embedded narratives that define what we value as most important. That if we simply overcome our weakness, look deep down inside within ourselves, and find the power within, then we can shed our humanity. And just like those superheroes, up, up, and away, we can soar. So we project that image, not only onto our fictional characters, but into our real-life people, like our politicians, like our sports heroes, like our music icons. We love the little person who makes it big because we think, deep down inside, we can too. Now, please don't get me wrong with what I'm about to say. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with trying to be the best person you can be. To try to gain individual achievement is commendable. To try to overcome the odds is desirable. But if you take that mentality far enough, (coughs) if you take it to an extreme where it's just me against the world, if it's just me trying to do this on my own, if it's just me who doesn't need anybody else, then you reach a kind of mentality that is, and I don't think there's any other plain way for me to say it, a mentality that is directly antithetical to the Christian faith. Because the Bible is very clear. You want to be great? Greatness is not found by turning within And tapping into a power deep down within yourself. Greatness is not defined by getting control of yourself. It's found by giving up control of yourself. Yielding control over to God. And surrendering that control in service to a community of people. It's always found by saying yes in service to other people. So this extreme mental inwardness, this mentality, was operating in the background of the early church in the form of a heresy back when John was writing to this original community. It was a heresy called Gnosticism, which suggested that if you wanted to be great, you have to look for the inner light, for the inner power within. And so in order to find greatness, you had to shed all of your exterior all that it meant to be human, all of your limitations. So nowadays, we have this kind of mentality in the way we view our superheroes and even our celebrities, such that when Tony Stark or Bruce Banner or Bruce Wayne or Clark Kent shed their alter egos and overcome their humanity, and get over their weakness, then they can find the superhero within. Otherwise, they're just ordinary and vulnerable. Now take that theology, take that superhero mentality, and turn it into a dominant theology, and you get the heresy of Gnosticism. And that was what was operating in the early Christian church when John was writing this letter. And frankly... It's a heresy that in many ways is still infecting popular American Christianity. Think about it. it tries to convince us that if I, can, if I can just get my life in order, if I can just conquer my weakness, if I can just live the kind of life that I'm supposed to live, if I can just tap into that power within me, then I can finally do good things for God. The early Christian church had to weed out this kind of thinking because it realized first and foremost that if Christianity was anything at all, it was first of all incarnational, which means that it's God's desire for us not to escape our humanity or ignore what it means to be human, but to work in the context of what it means to be human that God wanted to bless the world through a human being, not by avoiding human beings. And that means that the ultimate goal of a Christian is not to escape what it means to be human, but to yield all of our humanness, all of our weakness, and all of our limitations over to God so that God could use you, not despite your humanity, but through your humanity not despite your weakness and all of your anguish and your pain, but through your anguish and your pain. The other thing that the early church had to realize is not only was it incarnational, Christianity was nothing else if not rooted in community. There is no such thing as Christianity as a solo sport. Christianity has always been rooted in community and advocated for a team effort. And despite the way we might view other periods of history, the Bible is very clear about the history of the Christian church, that it is not driven by individuals who were larger than life, who overcame their humanity to achieve great things as individuals. The Christian church has always been driven by a group of people by the Holy Spirit working in the context of the entire community of faith to do great things for God. And that's why, by the way, whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is never simply working in the life of just one individual. The Holy Spirit is always working in the context of the entire church. So that's why whenever we hear the phrase, spiritual gifts, Gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit, we always hear about them not for the solo benefit of individual people. Your spiritual gifts that have been given to you by the Holy Spirit are not for your benefit. In the New Testament, they're always used for the context of the community of faith. And that's why when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit gives to each individual, it's not just so that you can live your best life now. Not just so that you can maximize yourself and become all that you are meant to be. It is always so that you can use the fruit of the Spirit, just like your spiritual gifts, for the benefit of the entire church. Christianity is nothing else if not a community-based faith. And that's why. In The passage that Mike just read for you. When John is sitting down to write these little children in the early church, he wants to tell them that there is a superpower that they can use a superpower that defines what it means to be part of Christian community that is not meant to be kept to oneself but is always meant to be shared with other people you heard that word over and over again in the scripture reading today it is all throughout the epistle of first john there is no mistaking what that superhuman power is it's love not x-ray vision not superhuman strength, not wearing a cape or a mask or assuming a different identity. The only power that constitutes what it means to be a Christian is the love that comes to us from God and the love that we must share with other people. That is the key to greatness. Loving not just with words, but with actions loving not just conceptually or theoretically but behaviorally with everything that we do with acts of service with our bodies with our human bodies with our calloused hands and our swollen ankles even our sweaty brows loving with all of who we are as human beings earthly, fleshly, muscular bodies. The point of being a Christian is not to overcome what it means to be human, but to offer what it means to be human in love, in community. That is the only way to greatness. When individuals collectively say yes to love each other in service. And that is why this Say Yes sermon series has been so important. Because, little children, together we can be more than who we are on our own. Together we need each other to grow in the faith. You can't do it by yourself. If you really want to grow in your spiritual life, if you really want to maximize who God has created you to be, don't try to do it by yourself. Say yes to offering the fullness of who you are in service in and through this church because God is calling you. And God is calling you today to fill out that say yes card if you haven't done so already and bring it up with you and turn it in. That's what that say yes card is all about. It's not... It's not some rote, obligatory, habitual kind of card that we ask you to fill out that gives you a, a, makes you a pledge or a promise or a commitment. It is simply you saying yes to an invitation to explore how God wants to use you in and through this church. In a few moments, we're going to invite you to turn that in. You could simply turn it in by placing it in the offering plate when it goes by. Or when you come forward for communion... There are two baskets here in the chancel where you can simply deposit your card, and someone will get with you as a way of responding to your yes. Our hope has been that you have been prayerfully considering this card since you received it a couple weeks ago, and through your response and through your act of turning it in, you can say yes. Because despite what our superhero movies might try to tell us, our world will not be transformed by the sum effect of individual people aspiring to greatness on their own. It's only going to be transformed by the collective work of the body of Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit, to form a community that is so radically different from the way the rest of the world operates based on a radical ethic of love and the love of God made real in Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is why you are a part of this church. Because the world, more than ever, needs a hero. Not one with a cape or a mask, but a hero in the form of the body of Jesus Christ. And it needs you, to say yes to serving as part of it. Let's pray together. Gracious and eternal God, thank you for giving the world a hero in a surprising way. A hero who is the body of Jesus Christ working in this world to make your love real. Thank you for the privilege of calling us to be a part of it And help us to say yes to exploring even further our service to you. We thank you for all of the people who have already turned in a card, over 270 people who've said yes. We thank you for those who are about to turn in their card this morning. And we even thank you for those who are still wrestling over how to respond. In all these ways, we have evidence of your spirit at work and so we are grateful. Now use us, use our offerings and the way we give of ourselves to you and others to truly make a difference in a heroic way, in a corporate way in this world. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.